Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. I just want to start with a big thank you to everybody who, in the last week, pre-ordered Outside the Wire, my book, went to jasonkanderbook.com and let me know what they want me to write in the inscription for them. Some of the stuff is pretty creative. Uh, There's a lot of them. My hand has not been worn out yet, but we're getting close. But I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, And then Diana has a kooky idea for what you get this week for pre-ordering, and she'll tell you about that at the end of the show. So let's get to today's show. As you know, Majority 54 is really about helping you bridge gaps with the people in your life on these divisive issues without burning those bridges down along the way. And today, we have somebody on the show who you've probably seen a bunch on social media, and you know him as the liberal redneck. But he's a real guy, and his name is Trey Crowder, and we're going to talk to Trey today to learn about the man behind the character and to learn about the journey that he's been on as he does shows all across the country. So if you don't know about Trey, let me tell you, he films these videos from his porch and he goes on rants about social issues. And as you watch him, you instantly feel that he's venturing into this really upsetting territory. And that's partially because he seems kind of angry and partially because he has this heavy Southern accent and you kind of don't know where this is going to go. But then just when you think that you're about to see something maybe offensive, He really hits his stride, and that's when the liberal redneck shifts into this position of openness and general wokeness, and it turns your expectations all on their head. The ones that support it, they're the same ones that cannot wait to use kids as an excuse to back up any backwards-ass opinion they have about anything since forever. They're pro-life, they're family values, they're the ones that think of the children, that's what they do. Like 48.3% of their day is spent thinking of the children. Between thinking of the children and supporting the troops, I don't know how they find the time to be racist on Twitter. But, you know, no matter what it is, it doesn't matter, they bring it back to the children. You know, oh, transgender people want to take a shit, why aren't we thinking of the children right now? Oh shit, it's a black man with an opinion, someone think of the children. Every time, always. And now, that the rest of us are coming to them like, hey, y'all, there's a lot of actual human children in a pretty shitty situation. They're just like, oh, oh, no, not them, not, them, not those kids. He, he thought we meant brown kids. No, not those. We mean like, you know, like good children, you know. You know what we're saying, like, you know, white, unborn, purely hypothetical. Like, those are the type of, those are the type of children that we think of. That's what we meant, but not that <laughs> gross. Ugh. So here's my conversation with Trey Crowder about how we can use a few good jokes to offset the darkness. Normally, we start these interviews by asking people who they are, where they're from, but your website bio actually sums it up pretty well. It says, Trey Crowder grew up in Salina, Tennessee, a town sometimes described as having more liquor stores than traffic lights. It says, like most people from the deep rural South, 
Trey grew up with an affinity for literature, film, blacks, and gays, uh, end quote. Uh, so that, that seems, in a word, succinct. Uh, where does somebody with that upbringing find the voice that you found? Um, I, I don't, it's weird. I never had issues with, uh, I guess, running my mouth. I don't know, or, or saying what I thought about things. Like, even growing up there and even being kind of an outsider in that way, I just... I don't know. I was never one to shy away from, you know, sharing that type of stuff for whatever reason. I don't know if it's because, you know, my dad, uh, my dad raised me uh, to, you know, think a lot of these things or feel this way about stuff. I wasn't I was never rebelling in my liberalism or whatever, which is true for a lot of uh, other people from towns like where I'm from, but not for me. So I don't know. I just it was never weird or hard for me to do that for um, for whatever reason. So I've kind of just been doing this and, you know, leading to awkward social moments and upsetting people kind of my whole life. How do you think your dad came to this? Well, uh, I mean, what I've mostly chalked it up to over the years uh, is that my dad only had one sibling, a younger brother, my Uncle Tim, and my Uncle Tim is gay. And my dad's known that for you know, since Uncle Tim was a teenager, probably. So, I mean, for most of their lives and from the time I was born and growing up, they were always still super close. I saw Uncle Tim all the time and his partner, Uncle Mike, you know, they were always around and uh, it was never weird or anything like that. And I've always sort of felt like that probably had to have informed a lot of my dad's thinking in that way, because he also, you know, he didn't he didn't go to church like ever. And so I didn't really grow up in the church either, which is another huge anomaly, you know, in a place like Clay County, Tennessee. And I just think it all sort of at least goes back to uh, my uncle and their relationship, I think. Also, I mean, my family, so my dad, my uncle Tim, and then my Mima and pa, their parents, they were all, uh, you know, like Southern Democrats, uh, as long as I can remember and going back a really long way, but but ones that like continued voting that way sort of after the big shift, you know, because the party shifted hugely uh, in that regard. And there were a lot of Southern Democrats who weren't what, you know, were not liberals at all. But my family was always, especially for that area, you know, I mean, for that area, we were like, you know, I was Karl Marx growing up, you know, but, <laughs> uh, and so I think there was a little bit of that already, I guess. So there's more open-mindedness or something. And then, yeah, my uncle and him being gay and everything, I think, was at least kind of a catalyst uh, for it. So you toured as a stand-up comedian for a couple of years before you sort of found uh, this calling, this voice. Walk me through, like, as you were wrestling with, uh, you know, stand-up and, and sort of your approach and your voice to it, like, where things went and how you found this path that ended up inviting like this national viral attention. Well, I mean, honestly, uh, so I've been doing stand up for eight years now. Uh, first went viral and, you know, things changed for me about two years ago. So I was doing it for like six years uh, in complete obscurity and also for a good chunk of that very poorly, uh, you know, before I ever <laughs> got any attention for it. But that's just how it goes for anybody. But even though, yeah, I was. I, I think back on like earlier jokes and stuff of mine and cringe about them. It was still in the same vein of what I do now. Like in terms of, I was still trying to do the same thing. I just wasn't 
good enough or hadn't developed enough comedically, I guess, to pull it off. But I've always been attempting the same types of things because, like I said earlier, just those are the things that I've wanted to talk about and have talked about and have been angry about, I mean, my whole life before I ever stepped on stage or anything like that. So it came very naturally to me to talk about, you know, homophobia in the South or religion or hypocrisy or racism or that type of stuff. But yeah, when you're a brand new, when you're a baby comic and, you know, Sidesplitters Comedy Club in Knoxville, Tennessee, yeah, I mean, I was not pulling it <laughs> off, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of times for sure. But that is what I was trying to do. And then as far as what changed, I mean, honestly, just kind of caught lightning in a bottle with that first video that went viral like it did. You know, I, I didn't really change anything about my approach to stand up specifically. I just decided to do this video series that blew up in a way that I, you know, I don't think anybody could have anticipated or whatever. So then the the character of the liberal redneck and and Trey Crowder, how how far apart are those two or, or are they not at all? I, uh, the way I typically describe it is that the liberal redneck is a character in that it's just sort of me cranked up to 11, basically. Like <laughs> I all the, you know, feelings or opinions or stances that are in any of those videos are all 100 percent actually mine. Uh, you know, the I did grow up poor in extremely rural Tennessee, a very, you know, classically redneck upbringing and just sort of considered myself a redneck growing up for most of my life. But again, it's all it's all about perspective, because like I said, in my hometown, you know, I was Carl Marx, but out now I live in L.A. now and out here I'm just, you know, some old boy named Carl, you know, like I. <laughs> Like I'm very yeah. much, I'm very, no one out here crest, would ever question my uh, redneckery, you know, like it's just, right. it seems obvious, but you know, but yeah, in my hometown, I was, you know, uh, the smart, the smart kid or whatever. So, um, but yeah, yeah. it all comes from a very, very real place. It's just cranked up, you know, for comedic effect. Basically. What's it like now when you go, I mean, you're living in LA for your work and you go home and you're hanging out with your friends. I mean, what's that like in terms when you talk politics, for instance? Well, well, I just got I just got back actually from Salina uh, about eight or nine days ago. With um, my family and I went back there. We got a houseboat on Del Hollow Lake. We rented one. I mean, and a lot of guys I grew up with all brought their families out there and everything. So I just have just went through all this exactly what you're asking about and. I, you know, the guys that, like, I'm still buddies with and still keep in touch with are, like, you know, my real friends. Guys that, A, aren't surprised by any of this, and B, who basically take the stance of, you know, I don't agree with a lot of what you say, but, I'm you know, I'm proud of you, man. You know, keep keep doing mm-hmm. what, you know, keep it up. Do, you know, make that money or whatever, that type of well, thing. I, my guess is they're also, because, you know, Missouri and Tennessee aren't the same, but they're a lot more similar than California and Tennessee. And, you know, I got friends that I'm still buddies with from either high school or just just friends that are my friends recently, but they're Trump voters. And I feel like what happens is, is they say that, like what you described, like, hey, well, you know, I'm proud of you. But they also, I feel like, are more likely to come around to my opinion because because of the credibility of just our friendship. Yeah, for sure. No, we'll start talking about, a th- you know, like just using one example. I was talking to my buddy Kobe, who is, you know, 
Trump supporter, stereotypical redneck type guy, but has been one of my best friends for most of my life. So me and him are standing there, and he was talking to me about something, about one of my videos and how he thought it was funny, and I don't remember which one it was. But then after that, he goes, but now all that stuff you say about the NRA and all that, you know, I can't get with that. And then he mm-hmm. and then he's got starts starts to go on this little tirade about it's like I just think, you know, I'm a responsible taxpayer and I've you know I've got family to take care of and everything. And if I want to own a gun, I think that should be all right. And I just cut in was like Kobe, I think you should be able to too. Like there's a difference between I, I'm not saying take everybody's guns, you know. And so then we start talking about what. I actually think, and, you know, by the end of it, he's like, yeah, 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 you know, well, I see your point. I mean, yeah, you know, we shouldn't be giving maniacs assault rifles or whatever, <laughs> which seems like, you know, what shouldn't be that hard to sway somebody to coming around to that. But, but you know, it started out with him just me and him on completely opposing sides. And by the end of it, you know, we were seeing eye to eye at least a little bit. Well, it's funny because that's the whole reason that I called the show Majority 54 is because 54% of the country voted for somebody not named Trump. And that means that if all of us are having these conversations with our friends, because we're the best people to persuade our friends, then we're going to win a lot of elections. Right. So you started getting well known for this character and more people started to see this character nationally, not just in places like Tennessee. How worried were you about about being misunderstood, for instance, by people from the coast? Um, I don't I don't know if I'd say I was worried about it, but, I mean, I definitely thought there would be some of that, and there has been some of that, you know. Um, it, it's funny, some of the conversations that I've had uh, both online and in person since all this about with people, you know, that have never been to the South or anything at all or don't have family there or whatever, and, just some of the things that they say about it. And they're, you know, I'm having these conversations in the context of they're a fan of my videos or whatnot, like we're aligned, you know, hypothetically. But then they just start talking about, you know, how everybody from the South is, you know, a racist and how, you know, just do I think the South will ever come around? I had one lady ask me how I got to college, like how I did that. (laughs) You know, it's just like, uh, I mean, books, you know, like we have books. And it, there's just a lot, a lot of ignorance uh, about, you know, where I grew up in places like it. But obviously, there's a huge amount of ignorance there, too, about a great many things. But it is illuminating, you know, because people on either side of that, they often in true, you know, true, pure ignorance. They have no idea how oblivious they're being sometimes and it's just mm-hmm. but you know I wasn't surprised by any of that and it just it, it is what it is for the people out there who you know maybe you know they don't live in places like Missouri or Tennessee maybe they live on the coast maybe they live way up north whatever but they share you and I's liberal views like politically we align with them but then they say the kind of things that you mentioned a minute ago like they say things about the south when people have that attitude uh, toward the places we're from, how do you think that affects our cause, like the advancement of progressive ideas? <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's overall detrimental. You know, I mean, I feel like a lot of people on the left, just, you know, r- regular people that are just, you know, vote part of the voting public that are on the left, but also people, you know, actively involved in it, policymakers and, you know, camp- people that work on campaigns and all of that. I just think a lot of them have 
pretty much written off, you know, huge swaths of the country in terms of, um, you know, reaching people or or winning there, basically. And I don't think that that's ever a uh, a strategy that's conducive to long term success. Basically, I mean, I felt like with the election in Alabama in December, you know, with Roy Moore and Doug Jones, uh, mm-hmm. I've loved a lot of things about that. But one of the my favorite things that I liked about it was that I felt like it demonstrated that, you know, you can win in places like that, even in Alabama, one of the reddest states there is, if you just, you know, show that you give a shit like, the, mm-hmm. like Doug Jones and his campaign did. And a lot of people, the, the automatic rebuttal to that is like, okay, yeah, but look at the opponents. Like it took something that insane on a Roy Moore level for them to win, but I don't know. A, that's still progress, and B, it's from where I'm sitting. That's just what they are now. You know what I mean? Roy Moore <laughs> is not that atypical of a of a modern Republican candidate. I mean, it, still a little extreme, but they're pretty far out there. So I still feel like there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, that yeah, I hope the left on a national scale, you know, realizes and tries to seize on. Well, and I think. A couple of keys to what you just said that I, I want anybody listening to, to, I want to make sure they hear. One, what you didn't say, because what you didn't say is uh, that it's about moving to the middle or being more conservative or, or, or somehow trying to mitigate our, our progressivism and hide it. No, I, in fact, what I hear you saying is people will be receptive to these arguments. We have to bother to make them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing, and I think the most important is, you know, you said that it's it's really about proving that we care. I mean, right. what I've said for a long time is that folks will forgive you for disagreeing with them on something as long as they know that you believe what you believe because you care about them. And that's a lot different than feeling like you believe what you believe because you care just about somebody else. <clears throat> yeah, I think absolutely. That's what you don't, I think there's just, you know, there there are ways to reach people in Alabama and you don't have to automatically become hardcore pro life or whatever to to do that. You know, I mean, like I said, but if I mean, you do, Doug people Jones can tell. Did, people think you're full of it anyway. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, the thrust of our show is about using your platform to create change, no matter how big or small that platform may be. And you've now got millions of viewers and followers and fans, but you were just just another guy right before that hit. So, what is your advice for how people? should be using their platform to make change in the world? Like, what can, can anybody do today? I don't know how relevant this is to people all around the country, but I know that it's relevant to people from where I'm from because, you know, I, I tell people this all the time. And I'm talking now to people on the left specifically. But if you, like, people on the left from the South or from very conservative areas, I think the number one thing is just, not being quiet. And I, and I don't mean you have to be like loud and in the other side's face or be mean or disrespectful about it. Even, even if they are, you shouldn't necessarily, but you know, say what you think, because the reason that all these people out here in LA hear my accent and automatically assume that I'm like, you know, a racist hick or whatnot is because the, the people who are like me from the South, uh, you know, for a long time have been pretty silent uh, or drowned out, rather, by the very loud uh, 
you know, hollering from the other side and the more stereotypical stuff that people are used to hearing. But those people are there. Uh, and it's and I mean, I get it. You don't want to f- up Thanksgiving dinner or whatever. I mean, I understand. But it's just being honest with people and letting them know, like, you know, yeah, you're my uncle's wife or whatever, but you don't you don't know how I feel about this. Don't assume you do. You don't speak for me. You don't speak for all of us. And, uh, you know, and I'm still the same person that you knew before you knew that I'm a, you know, dirty commie or whatever. <laughs> I, you know, well, I, the, I think your point is there's power in coming out as a liberal. Like, yeah, that gets things done. I mean, I've I've been in very rural parts of Missouri where people tell me, um, you know, yeah, I, I put out an Obama sign and I kind of winced and I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. And now like four of my neighbors came over and. Now we're hanging out all the time, and we're we're making calls to our member of Congress together. Like, yep. people will find you and my, say, like, really? So I I talked a little bit about my uncle Tim earlier, uh, openly gay man who still lives in Salina, Tennessee, because he lives there and takes care of his mom, my mama. Uh, and he started about to, you know, um, I don't remember if it was before or after the election, but it was somewhere around there, and he started uh, the. Clay County Democratic Party, you know, having meetings and stuff like there just wasn't one before that. Um, and initially it was him and like his friend Tanya, I think, you know, and that was mm-hmm. pretty much it. And it's been 18 months to two years. And now he says every meeting they have, there's literally every time there's more people than there were the last time. And even if that's, you know, just one more person, you know, it's still has been growing the whole time. And I think now it's, you know, he has 20 or 30 something people, which in a town that small and for a thing like that is actually pretty good, especially considering he started with two of them. So, I mean, yeah, it's a mm-hmm. perfect example of what you're talking about and what I tell people all the time. Like they just assume they're the only ones, but you're not. I promise you, you're not. And the only way to find each other is to start talking. <laughs> mm hmm. Yeah. Are, are there any, I mean, that's, that's right on. Are there any other lessons that you want to share about like getting your message out, starting a movement that you've learned? I mean, you know, as you alluded to earlier, I think also you don't have to, you don't have to try to, to meet people in the middle on any given thing, you know, to, to do all, you can be honest and, you, you know, not like compromise what you actually feel just to try to like get across to somebody else or another group of people or your family or whatever. You don't have to do that and shouldn't do that. Um, and we can still get where we're trying to go. Jason, did you know that sleep plays an important role in your physical health? For example, sleep is involved in healing and repair of your heart and your blood vessels. Be clear, though, you are not a sleep expert. No, I Googled this, but it's really exciting. Ongoing sleep deficiency is linked to an increased risk of heart disease, kidney disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and stroke. That sounds serious. Yeah, now as I say it, I just want to be very clear that unlike the experts at Helix Sleep Systems, I am not a sleep expert. I just Googled this, and this was the first thing that came up. Working with the world's leading sleep experts, Helix Sleep developed a mattress that's customized to your specific height, weight, and sleep preferences so you can have the best sleep of your life at an unbeatable price. Here's how it works. You go to helixsleep.com, you fill out their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll design your custom mattress. They can even customize each side different from you and your partner. In 2018, Helix Sleep has taken customized sleep to the next level with the Helix Pillow. They've unlocked 
Pillow. They're in pillow stuff now. Level two. Level two. The all-new pillows are fully adjustable so that you can achieve perfect comfort regardless of sleep position or body type. Drew and I were playing a game the other day, and he got to level two, and we were both like, I didn't even know there was a level two in this game. It It just seemed like a game. It was an exciting moment I was there. That's how I feel about the Helix Sleep System. (laughs) Helix Sleep has thousands of five-star reviews, plus you get 100 nights, that's plenty of time, to try them out. Go to helixsleep.com slash majority54 right now, and you'll get up to $125 off your mattress order. That's helixsleep.com slash majority54 for up to $125 off your mattress order. helixsleep.com slash majority54. This has been awesome so far. Uh, this part of the show, the second part, is where... Uh, we run through a quick list of the arguments that our listeners might hear from, say, right-leaning family members, their misinformed friends, the the political pundit propaganda machine, and and these ideas, these viewpoints, they're often frustrating. Um, and you know, one of the goals of Majority Fifty Four is to give tools to folks so they can engage with people who bring this stuff up. So so I'm going to rattle off a few opposition talking points, and then we're each going to share some constructive responses to uh, less than constructive statements. So the first one is people say, like, look, Trump works for the forgotten man. That Like, people in Salina, Tennessee, they're forgotten, and, and Trump stands up for them. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. How do you feel about that? Like, what's your response to that? I'm very sympathetic to people uh, in Salina and places like Salina as to why they would hear Trump you know, pander to them basically and why they would want to believe it. But I, my problem the whole time has been with it's has always been crazy and it's still crazy to me that they actually do believe him. I get why it appeals to them, but I mean, come on. And I, the only answer I have for that is that that just goes to show how desperate people are in a place like Salina, how desperate they have gotten that even that guy specifically you know, is is good enough for them to uh, to, to buy into because they're just wanting to believe something. And I think that's indicative of how, you know, how grim an outlook they have. A lot of a lot of them do. And I mean, yeah, I sympathize with that. But, you know, that doesn't mean that he's actually going to do any of it. And that's the only solace that I take in it is I've, I've sort of felt the whole time like, I have no doubt in my mind that he's not going to follow through on any of those types of promises he made to these people. And as that continues to be the case and not happen and be and prove itself true, hopefully that will aid in, you know, swaying some of them back. But I'm, I definitely sympathize with why it appealed to them in the first place. What they heard from him is, look, you don't like the way I treat people. I'm not nice to people. Uh, you probably don't like me that much. But I've made myself very personally successful doing this, and uh, I'm going to do that for the country now. I'm going to do that for you. And there are some people who I don't agree with their conclusion, but they said, okay, I'm willing to give that a try, right? Now, there are other people who have different motivations, but the people who we can persuade are they, well, I'm willing to give that a try, people, right? Right. And and I think the key is not, like, when people get this idea that they're going to have some, like, a few good men moment and they're, you know, and somebody who voted for Trump is just going to be apologizing up and down, I think that's unrealistic and also doesn't really matter. What right. matters is people voting differently next time. And so it's really, I think, about making the argument that, look, he, you still don't like him. 
he still isn't nice to people. He doesn't treat people the way we believe in treating people. And by the way, he never started putting us first. He still just puts himself first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Salina, it's a town where the beating heart of the whole town's economy, the whole county's economy for years and years was this clothing factory that moved to Mexico in the mid-90s. And ever since then, they've had 14% and up unemployment, which is devastating. And, you know, drug problems and crime and all this stuff has just gotten so much worse and there's no jobs and no money. I mean, it's gotten bad there. And so when, yeah, when he tells them, I'm going to go to Mexico and get your jobs back and I'm going to make them pay and all this stuff. I mean, I, yeah, I get why they want to believe that, you know, but it doesn't mean that you know, any of that's going to actually happen or that they're not ultimately wrong. But I mean, I get, I get why though. Yeah. And and, and I think the, your point is like, don't spend your time trying to convince them that they were wrong. Just make sure they understand that he didn't keep his promise about that. Yeah, right, exactly. Just keep the focus on him and what he and his people are not doing. Another argument that people make um, is they, and it's it sort of, I, I feel like this sort of crosses over with, um, you being a comedian with a with a progressive point of view, a liberal point of view, which is people say, look, political correctness is bad for America. Here's the problem with political correctness. It takes too long. We don't have time. We don't have time. I talked about anchor babies at one news conference, and one of the reporters, actually from ABC, said, that's a derogatory term. I said, why? He said, well, it's derogatory. He didn't know why. And then I said, well, what would you call him? The babies of undocumented immigrants. He gave me like a seven or eight word definition. I said, we don't have time for that. I'm sorry, we don't have time for that. Now, look, I can be the most politically correct person that you've ever interviewed. It takes too much time. I feel like that argument is basically it's good to offend people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just and that seems to be exclusively a right wing talking point, pretty much. And I'm curious what your response to that is. When it comes to like just the, you know, the hardcore Trumpers and like the alt-rights and the guys that are screaming, again, just straight up hate speech and all that. Yeah, of course that's not okay. But I actually, those guys were those guys were going to be that way and have those uh, opinions no matter what. I would rather know who they are and what they look like and what their names are. You know what I mean? I'd rather them wear it on their sleeves like that instead of just, you know, hiding in the shadows, basically, because they're going to be there either way. So I think that ultimately them coming out into the open more and yelling more about it, yeah, it's scary right now, but I actually think that ultimately it will be a good thing um, because I genuinely believe that the rest of us collectively as a society will, you know, be defeat them but i mean in terms of you know it's interesting triumph basically ultimately and then it's just better to know exactly where people stand in my opinion so i'm not gonna you know try to keep them from saying all the ridiculous they think because it's important for us to know what it is that they really think in my opinion well yeah and i think that like their argument about political correctness seems to be like like when they go to a a white supremacy march and then they lose their job right. and they're like, this political correctness is run amok. It's like, well, you know, actually like when you say political correctness run amok, I just hear somebody saying like, 
we have no responsibility to be decent to each other at all. Yes. <laughs> and and it's, you know, so I think like political correctness takes on all these different meanings. But to me, like when I hear it come from uh, folks on the right, what I usually feel like I'm hearing is just somebody saying, I don't have to consider anyone else. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. And I guess, and and yeah, when they go and they do stuff like that and they post about it on social media and then they lose their job and they flip out because, you know, well, that's violating my freedom of speech. And it, this has been said a million times by a million different people, but I firmly, you know, adhere to it too, that freedom of speech is not the same thing as freedom from consequences for what you say. And that's what's happening to them in those scenarios. And the fact that they don't understand it doesn't have anything to do with free speech or or political correctness. Okay, so just in general, what do you feel like are some bad misconceptions that that liberals have about Trump voters? We talked a little bit earlier about the whole, um, you know, his his super racist or misogynist or xenophobic rhetorics that he has and how there's a lot of people who think like, oh, the whole narrative about jobs and all that, that's just bullshit. This is really, that's really what it is. And we know that. I think that that, isn't true, you know, because, um, I mean, I feel like if that was all, if that's all it was, if that was all it was about Trump that swayed him to his side, then like, you know, David Duke would be the president or whatever. You you know what I mean? Like there's clearly Mm -hmm. something else going on there that is real, however misguided that it is. And also don't get me wrong, all that shit, it certainly doesn't hurt with a lot of those people. But I'm saying there are, there was some genuine reasons there for for a lot of that that we already talked about earlier that I think you know a lot of people just refuse to believe in or just don't want to hear about but I mean they are true and they are they're not going away like uh, something's going to have to be done about it and if we just ignore that on the left instead of like you said trying to find our way to address them and 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 talk to those same people about those things and bring them over to our side, then, I mean, yeah, we're not going to get anywhere. The other night, uh, I was talking to somebody. um, It was a a Lyft driver, and we got to talking about politics, and she was telling me, you you know, there's a lot of things I don't like about Trump, but I did vote for him, and I do support him. He's our president and all that. And I I asked her, I said, um, now, did you vote for, for President Obama? And she's like, oh, yeah, I voted for him twice. And I said, well, if he had been able to run again, would you have voted for him? And she said, oh, absolutely. She said, I love Barack. She's like, but I really like Trump too. And I mean, it's just real hard to make the argument that that lady is racist. Right. For uh, sure. Not to say just because she voted for Obama, therefore she can't be racist, but she's like, I still love him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. something else going on there. Like we didn't get, it was a short ride. We didn't get to for finish. Sure. But and like it, you can't just explain her with that. Exactly. Right. And that, right. Yeah, I, I, I got to watch it with this type of stuff sometimes because I know I start coming off as like too apologist or defensive or something. Because, yeah, I'm not trying to say that that isn't real, the racism and all that that isn't there. And that those, I mean, yes, of course it is. All, all I'm trying to say is, like you said, there's more to it than just that. That's an oversimplification and it's not a real understanding of what has been going on here. I think another huge misconception about Trump voters from a lot of people is that because of Actually, because of this narrative that we've talked a lot about in terms of him reaching, you know, white working class people in places like Salina with all the jobs talk and everything. I feel like now that's what a Trump voter is. Everybody's mind is somebody, you know, my people, rednecks, you know, Mm. trailer babies, whatever that that's those are 
Trump voters uh, in a lot of people's heads. And there's, you know, all white people voted for Donald Trump, <laughs> like across the board, statistically. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of wealthy country of people wealthy, who voted for him. Yeah, wealthy white people that, you know, voted for Trump and are all about it. There's people out here in Southern California you know, that voted for Donald Trump and uh, everywhere else that don't look or sound anything like that. And so when those people get scapegoated as just being, you know, like that's his base, that's the base, and that's what the problem is, it lets a lot of these other people uh, off the hook, in my opinion, you know, and it's just not fair all the way around. It it also just sort of feeds into, like, like, I think Trump wants to perpetuate that idea, right? Because the way he keeps... The way he stays strong politically in places like Salina, Tennessee, is he has both sides saying that's Trump country, right? right? Yeah, and then and then if if you are just sort of you know growing up and coming into your political opinions and and like you said, people around you who are liberal don't speak up, and you only hear the voices that aren't, even though there are liberals around you. And then the TV and radio and everything is constantly saying where you're from, people vote for Trump. At some point, you're like, I guess I'm a Trump person. Like, and we should be aware of that. We should be aware that if that while racism is something that has to be confronted, if we just explain every single voter and their decision in those terms, then we are going to lose the opportunity to convince a lot of people of our side of the argument. Yeah, absolutely. That I mean, that whole dynamic of, you know, they people from where I'm from think that people on the coast and in the big cities just, you know, hate them and look down on them and all of that, think they're all stupid and everything. I mean, that that's definitely very real. Like, that perception is very much a real thing. And, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's not doing us any favors in trying to make headways in those areas in the future. But, I, you know, the individual person, I don't know what yeah, I don't know. It's a complicated well, situation, very much. David so. Axelrod always says that if you if you tell a voter that you don't need them, they will believe you. Right. And, yeah. Uh, exactly. It's so like, like I was saying, you gotta make your argument to everybody, and you don't got to compromise to do it. You just got to convince them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like we were saying earlier about you know Doug Jones again. I think it's. I mean, that's the whole reason that session or big part, huge part of the reason why sessions even where he is right now is because that that seat was considered totally unflippable, you know, but it happened because it can be done. Um, but yeah, not if the people, entire regions are just written off entirely by those of us on the left, you know, then it's not going to happen. Well, Trey, thanks, man. I really appreciate you doing this. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been great. And, uh, Anytime. A huge team candor thank you to Trey Crowder for sitting down and cracking wise and talking politics with us. Can I ask you a question about the interview? Yeah. You and Trey were talking in the last section, and you said that when you're talking to somebody, you're never going to get a few good men moment. And I, I don't know what that means. It's the part where Tom Cruise is like, you ordered the code red. And Jack Nicholson goes, you're damn right I did. Like, <laughs> like in politics, that just doesn't generally happen. Like you convince people over time. They don't go, you're right, I was wrong about everything. My whole worldview has changed. Yeah, like you, you, <laughs> people want that, but you don't get that. You gotta, It takes more work than that. Okay, I got it. Now, if you liked our discussion today, you should check out the book Liberal Redneck Manifesto, Dragging Dixie Out of the Dark, and the upcoming From Dixie with Love Well-Read Stand-Up Tour. Dates and tickets are on TreyCrowder.com. Date night? For sure. That'd be fun. 
Thank you for listening, all of you, to Majority 54. Uh, and thank you to everybody who last week posted the places where they listen. It's always fun to see that. I enjoy it. And if you didn't get enough Jason Kander in your life this week, he let me do this really fun thing where if you pre-buy the book and you go to jasonkanderbook.com and upload your receipt this week only, you get all the other stuff you usually get, but you also get a personalized voicemail or video from Jason. So he can be the ringtone uh, that rings when you, somebody calls your phone or just a fun prank on one of your friends, whatever you like this week only you get all the other stuff and the voicemail. Yeah. Outgoing voicemail. Keep it clean folks. Keep it clean. <laughs> all right. Subject to approval. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to use my best judgment, here, you know? <laughs> all right. Now uh, all the links. Look, I'm at Jason Kander uh, on Twitter. Trey is at Trey Crowder. That's T R A E C R O W D E R. And then you can always email us, hello majority54 at gmail.com. I'm Jason Kander with my wife Diana and the whole team here at Majority 54. Thank you for listening. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. From 2008 to 2015, General Electric had an effective tax rate of negative 3.4%. Well, goddamn, General Electric must have been a veritable carnival of job creation during that time then. No, during that same time frame, they cut. 15,000 jobs. How's that sandwich taste? This is what really happens when you give corporations a tax cut. First of all, the CEOs are gonna give themselves a raise. Secondly, they're gonna take that money and buy up a load of their own stock so that fewer shares are available to the public and the price gets driven up. A practice that, by the way, used to be considered illegal stock manipulation. When these corporations get tax cuts, they don't take the extra money from Uncle Sam and actually invest it in their business. Hell no. That would require them to do like open new plants, develop new products, or even the horror, hire new people. That. They're not going to do that. All they're going to do is line their own pockets and the pockets of their investors. Tax cuts for the rich do not create jobs. They never have. This type of economic dogma, much like my racist uncle, just won't die. And that's because they don't say it because it's true. They say it because it's a super effective way to get tax cuts. Actually saying the truth, we're rich, you f***ers are poor, and we aim to keep it that way, that's not the best sales pitch. And Paul Ryan's out there going to town hall meetings and proclaiming that a new tax cut for the corporations will result in jobs, jobs, jobs. And he says that because he thinks you are dumb, dumb, dumb. Look what happened in Kansas, where they had a massive corporate tax cut. And when people said, well, how are we going to pay for our public services if we do this? The tax cutters just patted them on the head and said, oh, don't worry your simple minds about it. Everything's going to be fine. Before long, we're all going to be swimming in cash. Well, fast forward a few years, and they can't even keep their f***ing schools open. It got so bad that their conservative Republican legislature had to pass new tax raises just to stop the bleeding. So next time you hear some politician spouting off about how tax cuts for the wealthy will lead to jobs for everyone, tell them you're not dumb enough for that bullshit. Hi listeners, it's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.